as they're walking out, a big thank you to everyone that helped put up Christmas here at East 10th uh, last Sunday. And I am so excited because this year there's a remote control that controls the tree and the lights up there. Trudy walked in, she picked up the remote, and she goes, click, click, and it was on. It was awesome. So, for the person who made that happen, thank you. It wasn't you, Mark. I'm like looking in this direction, but it was not Mark. Um, okay. All right, Luke. We're in Luke, the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, we've been walking through this Gospel, this uh, history of Jesus. And we come now to Jesus' first sermon. It's so interesting because this, this narrative, this part of Jesus' life is recorded in a different place than Matthew and Mark. Like, this is not where like, they place the event. But Luke decides to put right up front here at the beginning of the gospel account, this public ministry of Jesus, he puts Jesus' first sermon. And it's not lost on me because one of you will say it to me afterwards. Jesus could preach it within a matter of seconds. You took 30 minutes. That's right. That's right. I'm just going to expound on his sermon much longer than his actual sermon was. But we step into that first sermon. Now, if you want to turn with me, Luke 4. Luke 4 is where we'll be. Luke 4. We'll start with verse 14. As you're turning, let's set the context. If you where we've been so far, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. If you remember that, John the Baptist is out preaching this baptism of repentance. Jesus goes to John the Baptist. He, too, is baptized as a way of uniting with humanity, as a way of uh, being in step as he is fully God, fully human. He himself is immersed by John the Baptist. After that happens, if you remember, he comes out of the water and there's a dove, like something like a dove that descends on him. And the Father, God the Father, says something to God the Son. If you remember that, he says, verse 23, it's not on the slide, just reminds you of this. God the Father says, you are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The Father speaks a word over the Son that describes this intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And that word is to steady his soul. And right after that, the Holy Spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness where Jesus is tempted three times by Satan. And each of those uh, temptations, Satan is trying to cut, to attack at God's Word. So that God the Son will doubt, will not believe what God the Father has just spoken over him. And every temptation, if you remember, Jesus trusts God's Word. Never gives up on God's Word, even when tempted to jump off the height of the temple, to accept every kingdom of the world, or to turn a stone into bread. Jesus obeys perfectly, trusting God's Word. He never lets go of that Word spoken over Him at His baptism, where the Spirit of God descended on Him. Now that Spirit, which has just driven Him into the desert for 40 days to be tempted, now... The Spirit will be with him as he goes to his next step of public ministry. So it's those next steps of public ministry that we pick up. Verse 14, here it is. Luke 4, verse 14, coming out of the temptation in the wilderness. Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. 
And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what, you, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Verse 24, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in this hometown. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was sent to, it was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath at this region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel who had leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Nahum the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of the hill to which the town was built in, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked straight through the crowd and went on his way. There's so much here in this passage. But I feel like before we dig on these two main themes running through the passage, which are what Jesus read, and then what he said, and then how the people responded, I think we need to deal with the elephant in the room. You do remember how, how uh, Luke describes Jesus coming in to Nazareth and what he does as he arrives. Pick it up here. I feel like this is the big elephant. We'll just deal with it, and then we'll move on. Uh, grab, let's go to this next slide. I've highlighted it here. Luke notes this. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Short story, Jesus went to church every Sunday. So, so there was nothing called church, and the synagogue was not a church building, but this was the time where God's people would gather and hear God's Word and worship with prayer and song. They did it every Sabbath. Now, we don't do it on a Saturday, we do it on a Sunday, as this is the day the Lord uh, was risen. But don't miss this. Jesus went to church, and he went to church every Sunday. And here's the way one scholar said it. Actually, he was a scholar pastor. Here's what he says. Uh, not that, not that. Let's, um, the slide right after the one we just had. There it is, that's all right. That's all right. They have no context, but don't worry, I can't wait till we get to that one later. Um, here it is. Here's what he says. If anyone had the right to think that he didn't need to go to worship, well, it was Jesus. Imagine how many times he had to sit through below-average teaching. That one kind of, kind of almost cut that piece out. Um, how easy it would have been for him to say that he didn't need to go to the synagogue, that he could commune with his father better somewhere off by himself. Yet throughout his life, Jesus maintained a regular pattern of public worship. And I love this. And if going to worship was good enough for him, then obviously it needs to be a priority for all of us. So when you're able but don't go to church, you're saying you can do something Jesus couldn't do. Whew. 
If that's stepping on your toes, good. Yeah. Okay. But if you're in this room and like you're in church, so like you shouldn't be, like your conviction should be somewhat limited, right? I'm talking to all the people watching. Um, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. For you watching, at least you're watching. I'm talking to all the people that you're going to tell they should have been in church today. That's who I'm talking to. You get to deliver the message, not me. Um, so let's go on. So I just, I felt like we needed to deal with the elephant in the room. Jesus went church. We need to go to church. All right. Let's pick up now. So Jesus, when he goes into synagogue, he unrolls the scroll. So like the Bible in that time didn't look like this. It didn't definitely wasn't a digital device. It was a scroll. I mean, that's the way these uh, these things were put together. And when you took a scroll to get from one end to the other, you had to unravel it. So it's not like he could just like cut through the middle and all of a sudden be where he wants to be. And the other thing is the Hebrew scrolls would not have had chapter and verses. And many of the scrolls, the words were actually crunched together. So what that should tell us is that when Jesus turns to a particular place in the scroll of Isaiah, he was familiar enough with the scrolls to know where to turn to. Jesus isn't reading Isaiah for the first time going, I know there's probably a really good verse here. I'll just open and put my finger there. No, there's a verse that he wants to. There's a passage he wants to get to. So he unrolls it. He's familiar with the Scriptures. Jesus is a man. Yes, God God the Son, fully God, but He's also God, fully human. And so He learned the Scriptures like you and I learned the Scriptures. And He knew this scroll. He would have been familiar. And actually, He quotes from two places. He quotes from Isaiah 58.6 and Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. So what it tells us is that Jesus probably, as He's unra- un- un- uh, undoing the scroll, uh, unraveling it, He... Um, what he does is he gets to one part of the passage, one passage, and then he moves to the next and he pulls these together from memory as he reads. Probably what he's reading is Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, and pulling in Isaiah 58, 6. And he reads this passage. And the thing that we need to pay attention to is what he launches with, which comes from Isaiah 61, 1. Here's what he launches with. We'll, we'll pick it up here. I always turn here, but with the tree, I'll have to get used to this. Uh, let's go to this next slide. He, he does this. He, he quotes from this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me. He's got several other things he's going to say, but you know he then rolls up the scroll and then he hands it back. And then he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now here's the thing, Jesus hasn't done all those other things on the list. I mean, he wasn't letting prisoners go free in that moment. There weren't sick people right in front of him that immediately were healed. So the question is, what's been fulfilled in their hearing? It's this part of Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is on him. Where would that have happened? It had just happened at his baptism weeks before. Jesus walks into the synagogue already having the fulfillment of the Spirit of the Lord on him. He is the anointed one. And they would understand this is exactly what he's saying. Something has already happened. Jesus is Messiah right there in his presence. And what's the Messiah going to do? Well, God promised that one day someone's going to be anointed. We know this is Jesus. And he's going to do some things. Here's the list. Just so we see it in list form. So maybe it helps to see it in list form. We'll go to that next slide. Here it is. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to, for the prisoners, sight for the blind, set the oppressed free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now, I'm telling you, we could spend two weeks on that list right there. Just there's two sermons right there in that list in those verses. But I want to take the kind of zoom out and see it. See big picture here. For nearly 150 years, more liberal scholars have said that this is the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus is not so much a spiritual ministry, it's a physical ministry. Back in the 1920s and 30s, this would be called the social gospel. The idea that really what Christianity is about is feeding people and making sure that justice is done. In our criminal justice system, all the way to... Uh, to, to what happens on foreign soil. We need to be about the work of justice, feeding people, and bringing them medical care uh, where we can. That is really the heart of the gospel. And they'll point to this passage right here, that that really was the goal of Jesus, was to, was to make sure that people were taken care of physically, that they would that the poor would be taken care of, prisoners would be set free, those particularly that are there unjustly. People that are blind, physical ailments are going to be healed. And oppressed people, they're finally going to be free. This is the social gospel. This is the work of Jesus. And they, they cut out, and it's been happening for decades, they cut out the whole spiritual side of the equation. And what we need to understand is actually the word here for release is the same word that is also translated in the Gospel of Luke for forgive. And what we need to understand is, is that yes, Yes, there is no doubt there is a physical dimension to the gospel. When the gospel goes into a culture, poor people start being taken care of. Oppressed people start to be freed. Like, there really is positive things that happen when the gospel goes out physically. But Luke has in mind here that deeper issue with every human heart, and that is sin. That's the issue here. Jesus is going to come and bring a message of salvation that ultimately is going to deal with human sin. Now, I just want you to see this one example. Just one example. So we can keep moving through the passage. One example of this. So if this, if, if Jesus was just about healing people physically, making sure hungry people were fed, and people that were in jail unjustly were like let out, if that's all he was about, then this story would make no sense. Because in the next chapter, eventually we'll get to it, there's a paralyzed man. If you remember the story, there's a paralyzed man, and he, he has a bunch of friends, and they're trying to get him to Jesus. They can't get through the crowd. Do you remember what they do? They, yeah, they cut a hole in the roof, and they lower this paralyzed man down through the roof and put him in front of Jesus. And do you know what the first words of Jesus are to this man? You might say, get up and walk. If this is all about physical healing, if that's... The, that's the job of the anointed one, then that's what he would say, is get up and walk. The first words of Jesus to the paralyzed man, this man oppressed by a malady, this illness, this whatever, whatever this is that has made him paralyzed, this man oppressed by this physical ailment, Jesus says this, Luke 5.20, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now that sounds a bit heartless and callous. Would you like to show up to your cancer treatment and the, and the oncologist says, your sins are forgiven? No! Like, I want to be healed. But Jesus saw what the ultimate problem was. It's the problem every one of us has. It's a sin problem. Now, eventually Jesus is going to tell this man, get up and walk. But the first thing he tells him is your sins are forgiven. 
Because even a paralyzed man, the ultimate, the base issue with that man was his rebellion to God. And Jesus in that moment says, your sins are forgiven. So we need to understand that Jesus is coming into the world in his public ministry and he's going to deal with the spiritual problems of every human. That's what he's going to deal with. So don't miss this. Okay. So when the people hear all of this, they go, man, we love it. Like, this is good stuff. But then there's rumblings in, you know, among the people. They start realizing exactly what Jesus has just said. And then people start questioning exactly who he thinks he is. And skepticism starts growing. And they start saying stuff like this. Now, this is some, like, I, I, like I'm using my imagination here. This is not in the text. You'll see what I'm getting it in a second. They start saying things like, Jesus can't be who he says he is. He's Joseph's son. We watched him grow up here in town. Like, that can't, this guy can't be that guy. If he's the anointed one, let's see him do what we've heard he's done in other places. If he's the Messiah, let him do some miracles here to prove himself. They begin to question who he says he is. And they want a sign. Now, you might, now it's like, we're, like, how do we know? How do we know that this kind of skepticism is growing? It's because of what came next. Check it out. We'll just quick review. Next verse uh, in the passage, this one that really brings it to light. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, uh, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. It's that proverb we need to like just touch on for a second, because that doesn't sound like skepticism. Like, that's not an odd proverb. Physician, heal yourself. You ever said that to your doctor? I've never said it to our doctor, never said it to a pediatrician. Like... I'm just imagining what that would sound like, right? Like, I think my kid has an ear infection. They come in, and I say, first, you heal your ear infection. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But in that day, when a physician would come through town, they didn't come with a bunch of credentials from, like, Vanderbilt or UNC or uh, any other medical school. They came around selling snake oil. They came into town promising great uh, uh, great results by taking this elixir or this liquid or this medicine. And so often, as, as, as would happen, people caught on that, that sometimes that doctor needs to show us that it's real. And so what they would say is, hey, doctor, you take the snake oil first. You heal yourself, and then we'll take it. Does that make sense? Okay. And so what this tells us is, they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, you're promising a lot, but why don't you do something for us to see it before we believe you? We want to see it before we believe it. That's what's happening here. We hear your word, but we want to see what you do. Ugh. And so what Jesus does is he comes at them with an example of two people who actually be- believe before they ever acted. They believed God's word, and then God did something. They want Jesus to do something, and then they'll believe God's word. Isn't that how we always think it should work? God, if you're there, then... No, this is, these are two examples where people didn't do that. Now, one was a man, he was a Syrian soldier, and he goes out and he, he's got leprosy, and, and Elisha tells him to go dip himself multiple times in the river, and he does, and he's healed. It's the other one that I really want to press on because, man, it's such a great story. There's this widow. She's a foreigner. She's not an Israelite. 
And this happened to her. Here's the story, First Kings chapter 17. We'll read the, this, the larger part, like the, the, the main section of the story. So we have Elijah and you have the foreign widow. As surely as the Lord God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour and a jar and a little olive oil and a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home. Do as you said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her. And so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Can you imagine how crazy that sounded to this woman? Like, we're about to do, we're about to like bake our last meal and you want me to bake you? Bake you food that we could eat? And what does the widow do? She believes the word of the Lord. She does what God has commanded. Even when it makes no sense, except that God's word is true, she does it. She follows God's word and then she sees God work a miracle. But how often we want that reversed. God, you work a miracle and then I'll give you the praise. That's the problem with the Nazarenes. These are a people who want a sign. Then they'll believe Jesus. Jesus says, I won't even, I'm not working a miracle among you because of your unbelief. Now the irony of this whole passage is how it ends. Luke tells us that the people take him out all the way to the cliff, and then what happens? Jesus slips away. And you know what he doesn't tell us? He doesn't tell us how it happens, right? Like we don't know exactly how he slipped away. He leaves us wondering. Luke leaves us wondering. It might just be that the miracle in Nazareth was right there. The miracle of the whole story is that he slipped away as they tried to kill him. There's the miracle. That's something. Yeah, I'll perform a miracle. I'll leave when you try to kill me. And you won't be able to stop me and know how it happens. There's the miracle. There's an irony there. And I just wonder if Luke's trying to tip us off to a fun piece of the story. The other thing we know, and we should not miss it, because we are walking through the gospel according to Luke. This foreshadows where the story's going, Right? There will be another moment where the people will cry out for his death. Well, they'll gather him up and try to kill him. And this time, they will. They will. They will succeed and he will be killed. But the irony is sitting right there in the story as well. It is in killing him that salvation comes into the world. Isn't that something? Do you know where finally the oppressed are going to be set free? Where the, the good news to the poor where the spiritually blind can see, where the year of the Lord's favor is finally declared in a way it's never been declared, it'll actually happen in the moment where the crowd kills them. That's when it's going to happen. Because finally, the sin that has bound them will be broken. This story right here is going to foreshadow where we're going. So just let's not miss it. All right, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. 
man, there was so much more we, I wanted to talk about, but we'll leave it there. Let's talk about some application now. Like, how does this, this, this story, this story of Jesus uh, reading and speaking, preaching, and then the response of the people, what does that have to do with you and me right here at the end of 2022? I think it's a warning. So here's where I, here's where I kind of want to, I want to walk into this. I think it's a warning, uh, and I've already been alluded to it. I think the warning is, don't be like the Nazareans. Okay? Don't be like the Nazareans. That's, I think that's the big, big takeaway here. And if I had to unpack it, it would be this. Don't be like the Nazareans thinking we have God all figured out and that we should do what we expect Him to do. Now, let me say it another way. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know if I like that. But some, some of you might. So let me try it this way. As humans, and especially as American consumers, everything is about us. Everything's about us. And so it's tempting to think that God is also all about us and our comfort and prosperity and physical well-being. I think we default there. Oh, no, God is very much concerned about us. But when you and I talk about being concerned with ourselves, we typically don't think in terms of suffering and, and ailments and discipline and obedience and submission, we typically think of well-being and comfort. Like these are the things that drive us. Many of you know we've had no heat, no central heat in our house for over five weeks. You, you want to stir up frustration in the human body? Just be cold for a long time. That'll Like Rylan woke up the other morning and said, I think I saw my breath in my room. I'm like, that's good for you. That's good for you. Tess and I had the heater in our room, but, I mean, it's good for him, right? Yeah. But the point is, I was mad. I, I walked around irritated because I was just cold. And our house is brick, and it holds everything. So if it's warm outside, it takes a long time to finally get inside. And I was just frustrated. It just taught me how quickly I get upset. Just like that. And I, it's, we're just dealing with being cold. Not to mention dealing with people. Like, we're talking about being cold. I think so often we think that God is all about our comfort, our well-being, making sure we just feel okay. Because else in the world is supposed to be thinking about those same things, just about how we're to be okay. One of the temptations for us, I think one of the temptations we've really got to guard against, is the idea that God is made in my image. That God wouldn't do that because God is this. And it's nowhere in the Bible. God actually might be about your suffering to make you more holy. That is actually scriptural. Like, that's biblical. So I want to quote to you something I read here just this week as I'm working through this book very slowly. Many of you know this person from your high school days. I don't know, maybe you read the... Uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. You remember reading that sermon from Jonathan Edwards? It's the, it's the one that most people pick up. But man, Jonathan Edwards has so much more to say. He's probably the preeminent American theologian like in American history. And I know he wasn't American. I know he was British in the colonies. I get it. But we're going to claim him as American, okay? Jonathan Edwards wrote many other things. He wrote one book called The Religious Affections. And in The Religious Affections, he said this. Man, this is timely. 1746, man, it preaches in 2022. Men may love of God of their own forming, in their own imaginations, 
And so having formed in their minds such a God as suits them, and thinking God to be such a one as themselves, who favors and agrees with them, they may make him, they may like him very well and feel a sort of love to him when they are very, when they are far from loving the true God. We need to be very careful not to create a God of our own imaginations, a God who cares about us. You know where this happens so often. It happens with me, and I know it happens with you because this is the tendency of the human heart. When do you praise God the most? When you get the job? When you get the bonus? When everything's working in life? When you're healed? That's when you praise God. And what do you and I do when we suffer? We are begging God to take it away. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be begging God to take it away. But I'll tell you this. If you're like me, praise is not nearly as quick. I know, I'm hearing myself preach back to myself. I'm sorry, the online streaming went live back to me. And it's on a delay. Okay, sorry, I'm back. Whatever I was saying was a really good point because Satan did that. So you need to pay attention to whatever I was saying. He didn't want you to hear it. Um, I don't even know what I was saying, but it was really great. So you hold on to that. It was really profound. What was I? I got like, what? Can I get the train back? Where was the train going? Yeah, just go with this quote. It's really great. Um, ah, <laughs> uh, praise. When do you praise God? That's what I was saying. Yeah. Okay. There it is. Um, we need to make sure that when we make claims of God, when we make claims about God, when we say what God's doing in our life, make sure you're tying that to Scripture. Because we have a tendency to make God in our own image. And when you do that, you rarely have a Bible verse to go along with it. Or at least the whole counsel of God to inform that understanding of who God is. If you are never upset with your God, He may be in your own image. Let's make sure we're loving the God who is true. That means, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, Satan does not want this to you. Yeah. So here it is. Here it is. I'm, I'm bringing the train back. I'm, the train's coming back into the station. Micah being up in the middle of the night. God's Word's going to do what I cannot right now. Um, where was I? Yes, I know where I'm coming. We'll just chalk this one up to the one of the more difficult sermons. This is that below average teaching that you need to just sit through right here, okay? All right, so, so here's where I want to drive it. I want us to make sure that, that when you're going through your suffering and when you want to give up on God because He's not doing what you think He should do, just like the Nazarenes didn't, Jesus wasn't doing what they thought He should do, when you're in that moment, I want you to hold on not to your feelings, not to the feeling of God's left me, God's not there, I'm done with God, God, God doesn't, God doesn't care. Like your feelings will take a million directions from reality. When you're in those feelings, when you're suffering, and life just stinks, hold on to this scripture and not your feelings. You hold on to Romans eight twenty eight. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. 
You hold on to that. That's God's Word. Your feelings will change. Do not hold on to your feelings. Or when you're tempted and your flesh is getting the better of you and you want to watch this or spout off this or gossip about this. I'm talking about those things of the flesh that you know are selfish, self-indulgent. When you get to that point, do not walk with your feelings into that sin. Hold on to the reality of this Scripture right here. This is the, this is the other side. So the Romans 8.28, encouragement. Galatians, we're going to Galatians. Galatians 6, 7 through 8, this is rebuke and warning. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh they will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. You can't gossip a little bit over here and still hold peace. If you sow in the flesh, you're going to get destruction. You can't just watch that on the TV screen that is so inappropriate and think, well, everything else in my life will be okay. If you sow in that, you will reap it. It's a promise. And God will not be mocked. So when you're feeling certain ways, don't walk with your feelings. Stand with God's Word. It's, the, it's a core piece of this passage. You hold God's Word, not what you feel about God. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? Okay. With our start and stop, are you with me? Alright. This might be one of my favorite next steps for you. Because it has a little bit of creativity. And man, I've needed it this week. So I preach this to my like I preach this to myself right here. Next step. Talk to your feelings this week. Talk to your feelings this week. For those of you who need a little more explanation. Preach God's Word to your feelings. So when you're feeling a certain way, and you think, all is done, life is over, I want to do this because it's going to be great and there will be no consequences, you need to preach God's truth to your feelings. You trust God's Word more than you do your feelings. Your feelings can come and go multiple times within an hour. You stand on God's Word. The problem with the Nazareans were they wanted to see. They wanted to control what God would do. And then they'd come along with their belief. God always calls us to stand on His Word. And then you will see reality. So my call to us is, talk to your feelings. Talk to your feelings. Okay, let's, let's, let's just pray. I feel like we're just going to leave it there. We're just going to pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we want to stand on it. And we're going to feel a lot of different ways in suffering, in success, in temptation. We want to stand on your word. We are not demanding anything of you. We trust you for who you are. We hold on to promises for who you are. We praise you no matter what's going on in our life because you are about you, and we know you have our best interests. So would you help us? We will preach to our feelings this week your word, and we sure are going to need your help. Because we will probably feel lots of things throughout the week. So hold us. We pray in the name of Christ. Together we say, Amen.